Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name's Jara, and thanks for tuning in. With me today is Sue. Hi there. And we also have a very special guest today, Sabrina from the Sci-Fi Sisters. Whoop, whoop. Amazing. Uh, Sabrina, do you want to quickly introduce yourself to our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your amazing podcast? <laughs> Thank you. Well, I am Sabrina Wood, and I'm one of four co-hosts on the Sci-Fi Sister podcast, where we give you our point of view on science fiction, Star Trek in particular, and we are part of the Trek Geek Podcast Network. Fabulous. If you haven't uh, taken a listen, you should head over there and do that as soon as you are done this episode. So before we get into our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. And we have a whole bunch of rewards you can access, like thanks on social media. We do watch-alongs that you can join or just listen to. Um, we have special episodes every two months on a non-Star Trek topic. I think the most recent one was What We Do in the Shadows. So visit patreon.com slash women at warp for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And if you're looking for a podcast merch, you can find that over on our Tee Public store. We're adding new designs all the time. We've got shirts, tote bags, notebooks, stickers, all sorts of things. Find it at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E public.com slash stores slash women at warp. On with the show. So today, our main topic was suggested by our patron, Anne. Sue, do you want to read the message from Anne? Sure. So Anne wrote, The era that each series was created or first aired has a nuanced relationship to the kind of future that gets imagined and portrayed in Star Trek. One example on my mind is Whoopi Goldberg refusing to use gendered pronouns in The Offspring to explain love to Lol. In the same scene, same-sex couples in the background in 10 Forward were censored at the last minute. For each incarnation of Trek, in what ways is it a product of its time or able to imagine a future that transcends the limits of that time? In what ways have the different Treks made a discernible impact on their time because of the future they dared to imagine? Such a good question. Yeah, I like it. Lots to discuss here. Um, I feel like we should just start at the beginning with the TOS era. That's a very good place to start. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I think we all have slightly different entry points into Star Trek. Uh, Sabrina, um, what was your first entry point into Star Trek? My first entry point to Star Trek was uh, the salt creature on September 6, 1966. So I was there for the first episode. Awesome. I was a the ten year old kid, so this is a very it, it's very interesting to me to talk about the context of the show at the in the sixties and and look back at it now. Yeah, for sure. So, were you watching with your family? I was watching with my little brother. No, Mm-mm. just my little brother. We were two little geeks, uh, ten and eight. <laughs> Hi, Lloyd. And my father came in and started watching it after he saw a horror. So. <laughs> <laughs> He watched with us as long as she was on the screen. As soon as she left, he left too. Amazing. Yeah, so, I mean, it was definitely a different context in several ways. I mean, I guess one of the the dimensions is just the assumption that were being made about the audience, who was the target audience, and uh, the fact that, you know, compared to Star Trek today, 
you had to choose in a household what show to watch, and there were limited choices, and you couldn't watch more than one show at a time. Most people didn't have more than one TV. And the networks were really, like, pitted against each other for viewers, and there were peak times to get the viewers that were the most lucrative. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because we used to watch the show on a little black and white TV in the kitchen. So we would sit at the kitchen table and we were watching Star Trek and the rest of the family was in the living room watching the big console color TV in the living room. But once my father realized, like I said, that a horror was on the show, we got to watch this show on the TV in the living room. And that I think it was a few episodes in that I realized the show was in color and <laughs> all of these uniforms. I mean, I was so excited. We're like, oh, my God, this is like a whole nother level now. It was like going to Oz. My God, we're watching it on the color TV. So it was a really big deal that, you know, we know this whole story and we'll talk about that some more. But one of the things that I, I did remember is that this show was done in the middle of the space race. Mm-hmm. And this was huge. And I don't know, you know, the target audience for this show may have been families. It may have been male boys or teenagers but I, I there were a lot of sisters watching this show when i go back and talk to people uh, when did you see star trek there's a lot of people my age that were black females that watched the show and one of the things that really got us was this whole idea of the space race and in this show we win it you know we at the point mm-hmm. where we were watching this we didn't know we were gonna win it so if anyone is watching, you know, for all mankind where they didn't win it in that in that uh, iteration of the story, this was a big deal that we were going to make it into space, that we were going to be friends with the Russians. I mean, we were in a absolute knockdown drag out race to get into space. And why were you racing? Because, you know, you had a control space because whoever controlled space was going to be safe. You know, I am one of the children that had to go through nuclear war tests. So to watch Chekhov you know, in the second season, come on this show, it was huge. It was really huge. We were like, what is Gene Roddenberry doing? We, we don't <laughs> like these people. You know, it, it was it was amazing. And I think a lot of times I feel that people don't get how big a deal it is. And you know, we can say it and people, you know, read about it. But I don't think you actually really understand how, I don't want to say, amazing it was almost like traumatizing for some people but you know to see a horror on the bridge and she's in uniform and she's doing a job that you know it's not particularly a female job or it's not particularly a you know a black person's job it is a it is a job for a bridge officer and to see check off there and to see sulu there i mean that was three things that was just not done mm-hmm. and it was it was amazing now what was going on Behind the scenes, of course, were the different stories. And you got to put that in context because Gene was fighting every step of the way. And he was sometimes fighting people who were actually on his production company. So, you know, he had his vision, but there were a lot of other people, either in Desilu or in NBC, who maybe didn't share that vision quite as crystal clear as he did. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it, it like affects... I think that's true on on multiple levels. One thing that I thought was really interesting and I wasn't aware of until somewhat recently, you know, I know the uh, the narrative that Jean talked about is 
you know, he was promoting women on the show. He was promoting people of color and diversity on the show and that people were trying to stop him. And I think that's true to an extent. But what I didn't realize is there was also this really strong parallel movement happening in Hollywood craft unions and like t- the technical professions at the time, as well as the actors guilds. And so in his book, Race in Space, the representation of ethnicity in Star Trek and Star Trek TNG, Michael C. Pounds talks about how the NAACP and others at the time had this like massive campaign that involved like stars like Marlon Brando. And uh, they had craft unions and writers and actors guilds that were being lobbied to move in the direction of having like diversity pledges and other types of commitment to improving diversity on screen and behind the scenes. And NBC had like made several public statements to this effect. And there's, there are memos between NBC and Roddenberry that also have like put this commitment in writing back to Roddenberry. So what I I just think is, is interesting to note is like this, it, 100% was groundbreaking, but it also wasn't happening just like in a vacuum. It wasn't like Roddenberry just had this idea by totally by himself. There was, I think the ground was softened a bit by this work that the NAACP and these other groups were doing behind the scenes to um, improve the representation of particularly African Americans um, in Hollywood. Right. And another thing is, I'm going to stay with this. And I I read that whole. The thing you so you were so nice to supply to me, and I, I thought it was kind of funny because uh, when you read it, and you know, I'm going to read it from my point of view. Yeah. I'm sitting here reading that, and it says, "We determine that members of minority groups be treated in a manner consistent with their role in society." Mm-hmm. So our role in society at that point, we were still in you know the segregated South. We still couldn't get loans at banks. We still mm-hmm. oh, so is this what you want to? Is this what you want to show? We want to you want to treat me like I'm already being treated in society? So you know. You know, you can write a policy, but if you haven't got anybody that's working at the studio for whom this policy is going to apply, this is this is just smoke, you know. Mm, yeah. And so when I read this, I said, oh, wow, this is like a diversity class right now. This mm-hmm. isn't going to do anything. What really did it, what really did it, and to put it in context, and I'm taking this from first person experiences. I don't know if you've read the book by Andy Kindred, who was at the Las Vegas uh, convention, just last one that we just had. And she wrote mm-hmm. a book from Star Trek to Slavery. And she puts it right on the nose. You you know, the NAACP definitely was lobbying. The NAACP was lobbying the unions. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the things that really got black people into Star Trek was the Watch Riot. When they burned L.A., you know, Lucille Ball herself said, oh, my God, I don't understand what's going on. And I'm paraphrasing here. You know, she said. I don't understand what the riot is all about. And then, you know, she starts to look at it and then she looks around her own studio, Desi Lou, and she says, you know, you're right. We don't have anybody working, uh, any blacks working other than in janitorial and the mailroom. Mm-hmm. And so Andy, Andy Kindred was basically a diversity hire by Lucille Ball herself and put on the set of Star Trek and Mission Impossible. And, you know, and then here comes, you know, Michelle Nichols was already on the show and Lucille Ball is like, yeah, we've got Michelle on front of the camera, but we don't have anybody behind the camera. And so yeah. for all the good and purposes of this lobbying and these memos from NBC, it was really when Watts went up in 1965 that people are now saying, oh, my God, you know, OK, yeah, I get it. 
So I want to put that in context. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing with the unions, NBC being the studio, and you got to understand what's going on here because there's definitely three or four different things going at play at the same time. There's NBC, you know, and then there's a production company like, you know, Dusty Lou, and then there's the unions. So all three have to be in sync with what Gene was trying to do, and they weren't because Mm -hmm. I know a few people, you probably know this man's name, it's Wa Min Chang. And he was the creator of the communicator, the phaser. He did the drawings for the Romulan Bird of Prey. But he was not allowed to work in the prop union. And once the union found out that, you know, Robert Justman and these guys were using these props that were made by this non-union guy, they shut it down. Mm-hmm. So they were like, no, you know. And then they said, okay, fine. Well, then let him in the union and we'll buy it from a union worker. And they said they didn't want to let him in the union because he was so talented that it was going to really take jobs away from their union guys. I don't believe that for a second. I believe that they didn't let him in the union because he was Asian. Mm -hmm. But he was never paid. Uh, They tried to pay him. The union came down and said, you know, you can't even pay him for this work that he's already done. So when you watch Balance of Terror, remember the name Wa Min Chang, the man that designed that ship that you see the Romulans on. He designed that bird of prey. The phasers and the communicator that, you know, is going on in that show, but he never got paid and he was never in the union. So this memo that NBC is sending out, policy. Definitely. And thanks. That's like such an important part of um, Star Trek history, that uh, sort of hidden Star Trek history and and who doesn't Mm -hmm. get credited. We also know in the original series that they were uh, shipping the costumes out to non-union seamstresses, um, who I am betting um, included a large uh, number of of racialized women. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were fighting. They were fighting so hard. Yeah, for sure. Definitely think that in terms of the network's position, I think we can pretty safely say it was maybe largely window dressing or a bit of like ass covering. And you uh, make a very good point about, you know, their level of ambition on this, even though its policy is still not very high. Well, you know, and I don't I don't even want to say that it was window dressing or ass covering. And I think a lot of it to a degree was probably from legal. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think there were definitely some people at NBC and Dusty Lou, of course, like I'm saying, Lucille Ball, who were going to put their money where their mouth was. But I think it's just funny that this memo would go to Gene. Gene's probably like looking at this like. Well, yeah, I could have wrote this. Uh, I'm I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and it's like, it's also interesting just to, yeah, look at, you know, how the directive, as you said, was basically like, match the representation to the standing in society. Yeah. And what, what Uhura was doing was, was quite different in a lot of ways than the way that a lot of people were treated right. in society. Right. And that goes to Anne's question. I mean, here's uh, what she asked. Yes. yes so that portrayal is not what our current men consistent with our role in society at the time or reasonable reflection of the contemporary society it was definitely a future that we had not seen yet and that we were hoping for Mm -hmm. so another aspect that uh, i think we have to talk about is around the influence of the women's movement and the movement for sexual liberation and uh where i feel like the this naturally draws the mind to is the whole miniskirt debate uh which is i think Mm -hmm. more more complicated than some people might think. Yeah, when I first, you know, back in the day started blogging my way through TOS, there were there were people who just were would say, well, you don't like it because of the miniskirts. Like, 
first of all, never said that. But secondly, <laughs> there is, I think, especially among fans like some of us that, that weren't around during the the original airing of TOS, that there is this assumption that, oh, well, the miniskirt was empowering and it was powerful and, and therefore it's a good thing. Right. So if you're mad about it, you're wrong. But there's plenty of evidence and and letters and writings all about how, you know, women at the time were saying it's really impractical to go on an away mission in a miniskirt. Yeah. And like there was definitely both opinions happening. Like Nichelle Nichols has talked about how she felt it was empowering and it was a symbol of the sexual liberation movement. And that, you know, when you had you know, moving from perhaps like an era previous to that where you just didn't talk about women's sexuality and women weren't supposed to have sexuality that was overt. You can see how that could be uh, positive in that light, but it wasn't like it's totally just people at the time liked it and people now don't like it. There's definitely a mix where there were people at the time writing letters objecting and there are people now that think it's awesome. The person writing that letter was my mother, <laughs> <laughs> who objected very strongly to my miniskirts at the time. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so I was 10, so I wasn't really wearing them yet. But, you know, we, I couldn't wait. You know, by the time I got to high school, you were hiking that skirt up, baby. I'm telling you. <laughs> and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. So you were going to school in the cold in your miniskirt. You would just... <laughs> No, you had your tights on, you had your high boots, and you were rocking that miniskirt. It was a thing. You wanted to wear that skirt. So um, and then a maxi coat came out, and that was just a whole nother thing. People were falling down stairs <laughs> and getting caught in the escalator. So if you want to talk about something impractical, <laughs> I would go with the maxi. I think, though, it's important to realize that the same garment can be both. Yes. And that's the the nuance that I think is missing a lot of the times when we we talk about this particular thing I don't even want to call it an issue it's not an issue this aspect mm -hmm. of TOS I think more so the the uniform of the Federation women that that bothered a lot of people it was really sort of the costumes of the alien women that were designed mm -hmm. by William Wirth and some some of those were yep. pretty ridiculous and even even today even then you know that was what the thing i got my father in the room he was like what is going on in this show it was like dad you always like these ones with the crazy you outfits on yeah you know even even with that women's movement there is still some there was definitely the women were being in these costumes that were you know i can't imagine what they thought when they got their costume fitting it's like, yeah. oh, are you kidding me? I can't believe you're going to make me wear this. But they did it nonetheless. And, and you know, and even within, you know, the this whole show of trying to show Black people in a different light or trying to show Asians in a different light, you still have things where women... Uh, you know, so I, one of the shows I always like to mention is Ilan of Troyes. Mm. And that you know, show has a very definite slant of that trope of the Asian woman as the dragon lady or, mm -hmm. you know, as the savage or, and I thought it was really interesting that, okay, here you are and you've got a horror and a horror gives up her quarters for the dolman. <laughs> and, and, but here she comes on and she's wearing this outfit. She's got a knife in her, in her arms band. She's, 
And then they give her an Egyptian type hairdo. <laughs> and I thought, oh, they're going to rock some dreads on her, got her in this kind of dragon lady thing. And she doesn't know how to, you know, eat off of, with a knife and fork. She's screaming and yelling. I said, you know, and it really is something that you, so you go, Hmm. All right. You kind of got the Asian men and you're doing a little better there, but you got to work on your images of women. You really got to work on that. It's still one of my favorite episodes because I think, you know, Franz Nguyen looks absolutely beautiful in those outfits. You know, now if you, if you had some of those outfits on, you would say not a problem, but it was, it's just a little when I saw it back when I was a kid. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I mean, one of the big differences we've seen over the eras of Star Trek is a general increase in diversity behind the scenes. And so uh, while, of course, there were there were some notable women and people of color behind the scenes on the original series, such as, as Andy Kindred and, and DC Fontana, it was much, much less diverse than it is now. And I think it connected at least somewhat to the amount of the like the male gaze that we see in in episodes like a line of Trius, where they like do the full body like pan over like the scantily clad woman mm-hmm. that kind of it assumes that like the audience is a heterosexual male and is like showing women in a way to appeal to that and we see that all the way through enterprise with like varying degrees but there's definitely episodes where you see to paul that's filmed it filmed that way i would say much less now and we can get to that a little bit later yeah there's one more thing about tos that that i think about from time to time and it is and this is a very much an of the time discussion right because they're clearly trying to show like Earth has gotten over its problems and, and all of these different nations and peoples are working together. And, you know, that's that's where we get the name Sulu, right? Because it's the Sulu Sea because the sea touches all shores, right, is the explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Sulu wasn't supposed to be originally from any one Asian country. He was supposed to be broadly Asian. And that at the time was seen as progressive, whereas now it's we look at it and we say, well, that's Orientalism. So mm-hmm. that's part of this discussion, right? Things change over time as we look back at them. And what was groundbreaking or even, I don't know, benign back when TOS aired, we can look back on and say, here's why knowing what we know now, this is actually problematic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that's not to say that anybody who was involved was inherently trying to be a bad person. No. It's about learning and growing. It's reflecting the time. It's reflecting the time they're in. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're bad if you like it. It's just about analyzing the show with a different context. Exactly. Like partly with the benefit of hindsight and being able to identify these patterns in media more broadly. We also briefly touched on the space race. There's also, of course, the Vietnam War. Yes. I know people are, are very familiar with many of the, the major allegory episodes from the original series touching on race and class and overpopulation and all sorts of, uh, well, of course, uh, like proxy wars and disarmament. So uh, we definitely can't get into every single episode that was influenced by the time. But yeah, I mean, of course, it was extremely tied into 
what people were, what viewers were dealing with and talking about issues that a lot of other shows didn't talk about, but was able to do that because of the allegory. Right, right. I think A Private Little War is the perfect episode. Mm -hmm. You know, that is just, I mean, I know everybody remembers the Mugatu. That's what you remember about it, Mm but (laughs) especially now. But uh, thank you, Lower Decks. But A Private Little War, I think, is a very, very interesting episode. And when you come down to the end, you know, Kirk is absolutely, he can't, he he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he has to, he has to give this other side the weapons, you know, he's, he's gun running to these people and it is this balance of power so you to keep the balance. I mean, we, we went through this in Vietnam. Are we going to arm these people so they can defend themselves against what we think is an enemy? And, and it's a, you know, McCoy was yelling at Kirk that you can't do this. And Kirk is like, I have to. It, I, every time I watch that one, I just, I just cringe because it was so true and it was so real. And, you know, to watch Shatner act that out for us, I thought was great. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about issues that they still weren't ready to talk about at this time, I mean, George Takei has said that that he talked to Gene Roddenberry about potentially having a gay character in Star Trek. And Gene said, and George understood, that we just can't right now. Like, we're already fighting the networks on all these other things. We can't do it. And, well, that I feel like is maybe a good segue into, like, the as we get into the TNG era where this debate becomes, or that, that discussion becomes even more, you know, there's more queer representation in media, in the news, and like the pressure is growing on Star Trek to bring forward some characters that can represent that identity. So yeah, we can get into that uh, shortly. Just d- want to uh, briefly touch on the animated series and movies era. As you mentioned, Sabrina, there was a discussion and there's some remarks from various people behind the scenes, including Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens talking about Star Trek Phase Two development in the 70s, saying that the demographics they were aiming at were young male audiences age 18 to 34 to attract advertisers. And that seems to have been generally what people were going for. But of course, as we know, there were a ton of women watching Star Trek and in fact, saving the franchise. Uh, so um want to uh, acknowledge that that is an important piece of the puzzle for, for how we ended up with the animated series and movies later on was all of that work that went into just organizing the fandom to show how much they loved this show. Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely something that I think really surprised everybody. And you always got to wonder about the validity of the sample. You know, if mm-hmm. if you're only testing in areas, I mean, I I never got a Nielsen box. I, I know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and I know that when you know, even even lately in the, in the during COVID, Nielsen was under fire for undercounting, and they're not giving. You know, they didn't think the numbers were correct during the while everybody was sitting at home watching television. They would like, I, this, this can't be right. So I, I always look at ratings with a, an eye, you know, because it's sort of like, mm, yeah, that's what you think is watching it. But I know, <laughs> I know mm-hmm. I didn't get counted. And I know a lot of women didn't get counted or, you know, the, the, the answer was given by the man in the house. And, you know, I don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you had to keep that little diary and say what you were watching and you watch it for more than five minutes and all that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe the diaries that came back with 
were fine, but there were a lot of diaries that didn't get mailed back. You know, that was a, another thing that happened in the black community where they actually paid money to make sure that some black communities would mail the ballot, mail it back. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's just really interesting. So that whole thing is another piece that how true or how good are your demographics? Yeah, I think that's a lot of that. That's something that a lot of people don't realize is that Nielsen ratings are self-reported, essentially. You know, you you log what you watch when you watch it and who the people are who are watching it. And mm-hmm. then you mail it even to this day. Like yeah. I, I have friends who, who had a Nielsen box maybe 10 years ago, and it was still a handwritten journal mm-hmm. that they yeah. had to mail back. And I mean, there's no way that can be accurate. <laughs> but what I think is interesting is, is um, in addition to like who was actually watching it or not was who they thought they needed to get to watch it. Right. And I think that to me, it, I believe that um, since we see this repeating pattern up until the streaming era, including comments to do with with Voyager and why they uh, hired Seven of Nine, that they were aiming for men between the ages of 18 and 34, that there was this perception that this was the audience that was going to control consumer dollars. And it hasn't been until recently that women were actually perceived as con- as like a-, a major consumer force. And even then, there's also like racial assumptions that go into this, um, that it's like white people have more consumer dollars. But so we see this in politics as well, that it, it was um, until maybe 20 years ago, you used to assume if you knocked on someone's door in an election and the man of the house told you how he was voting, that everyone in the house was going to vote the same way. And it's only like the last couple of decades that we've stopped us just assuming that because so that's not the case. So I think that that was the same idea, too, that the idea was if you if you got like young men, they were going to be driving the consumption of the products that were being advertised on TV and that what women in the house wanted wasn't necessarily important. Right. And and with a show like Voyager, where. You know, how many women have we, do we know or, 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 or have heard that was so inspired by that show? You know, and then you sit there and you got to watch a beer commercial or, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever's mm-hmm. going to happen. It's going to come on now. You know, you, you, I said advertisers really missed it with that show. I would love to go back and see, you know, who bought time on that and what they were advertising to us because. Right. It would have been something completely different if they had really known how many people <laughs> were watching that show, how many young girls were watching that show. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's talk about TNG. And I, I want to get into the comment that Anne raised about sort of the tension that we saw between some kind of progressive moves in the outcast and the offspring. Although obviously, you know, we have had full episodes on both and talked about the problematic aspects of particularly the outcast. But the way that they were trying to move forward these storylines, while at the same time, folks like Michael Piller were talking about how, but we can't actually show people holding hands in the background to people of the same sex. Yeah, I mean, in 1986, before TNG aired at a convention in Boston, this is one of my favorite facts, a member of a group called the Galaxians Oh, my God. <laughs> the Galaxians. I love it. Asked love Gene it. Roddenberry if there would finally be like an out gay character on Star Trek. And he promised at that convention that it was finally going to happen in the next generation. Thirty mm-hmm. some odd years later, it finally did. <laughs> finally. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, to hear some of the folks 
tell it, particularly David Gerald, the holdup in the next gen era was Rick Berman. Yeah, absolutely. I was at a con with him very recently where, where David Gerald said directly into his microphone, Rick Berman didn't want gay people on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. <laughs> because yep. l- l- let's face it, that show, I mean, TNG, for all intent and purposes, and I know a lot of people absolutely love that show. But that show was not the one that, uh, you know, they they didn't do. Well, let's put it this way. After you have a character like a horror, you know, to sit in now and then you give me Jordy, who's fumbling around and can't get a date. And he's, uh, you know, okay, he's going to represent disabled. Great. And then you have Worf. And he's like this crazy alien who's just, you know, security. And he his bridge is always, you know, breached every two minutes. And he's always getting shot. But, you know, you kind of wonder. It was just something. Because I said, you had two of the best-looking black men going in Hollywood. And you put things on their faces and heads. So what was this? Were you just making sure that, you know, Frakes and and Stewart were definitely the best looking people on that show? Or what was going on? You had Whoopi finally. She had a beg to come on because you totally went backwards as far as I'm concerned. You had an Uhura. And then in in this show, you had nobody. You had nobody that was speaking to me. You know, if thank God Whoopi said she wanted to be on the show. Yeah. Supposedly, the story I heard was that they didn't believe her. That she wanted to be on the show. Because, I mean, at the time when that happened, this was like the height of her fame in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And their their thought was like, there's no way she wants to be on our rinky-dink science fiction show. And and she had to go to LeVar Burton and tell them, no, I really want to do this. Because mm-hmm. they didn't believe the demographics from, yeah. you know, TOS. <laughs> right, right. I mean, they believed the, dem- they believed the demographic. They didn't believe that anybody was watching. <laughs> well... Yeah, and I mean, I think that one era, TNG also brought in the, like, Tice uh, cross costumes for the first couple seasons, too. So you Mm -hmm. had kind of a mix of some of these interesting costumes for women, and also in the first couple years, especially some extremely now dated issue-based episodes like Symbiosis, the War on Drugs episode. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Which, uh... If uh, no spoilers, but the Lower Decks reference was A+. (laughs) And, uh... Yeah, but but one thing we did see that was a bit of an evolution was in some women's roles and in women's costumes, as we saw, like, Troy finally getting an actual uniform later on. I would mm-hmm. say that, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Sue, you're a, a TNG baby and, like, we're majorly inspired by by Crusher. Yeah. But we also had, um, like, Ensign Rowe, we had Nurse Ogawa, we had Keiko, we had, like, a, a fairly... Um, strong as in addition to Guinan, as you mentioned, we had a, a strong roster of these like recurring women guest stars who came from different backgrounds and were starting to break into like less kind of traditionally accepted roles for women. Well, I think that is quite true. And one of my favorite characters that you just mentioned was Keiko, because I thought she was pretty much representing what was going on with women more so than any other character in that show where she had a career. And then, you know, later when they extend her story into DS9 and and then, you know, she's like, the that's like the first interracial marriage that we see in that show. And mm-hmm. I thought that was fantastic. They had this woman that had, you know, she is such a great botanist that she's put on the flagship of the Federation. So, you know, she must have something going on. And she gets married and she's got a, she's in this, you know, when we get to the DS9, she's got this horrible 
her husband's got this horrible station job and everybody's mad at her because she's not happy. You know, I always loved Keiko. I love that she was she didn't like working there, that she was unhappy, that she wanted to leave, that she was suffering. She's having these kids. I'm stuck on this base. My husband is going <laughs> off. And I, I mean, give me more Keiko. I don't know why everybody hated her, but I thought that was a great character. And that was a realistic portrayal of someone that was wanted their career and wanted to support her husband and just really sometimes couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And she's, at least on TNG, one of the only civilians that we see multiple times, like other than Guinan. And I think sometimes Ben, the server in 10 Forward, I think we see Ben a couple times. I have another female character that I always wanted to talk about with TNG, and it was always interesting to me, and that's Pulaski. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because as far as I was concerned, Pulaski was a female Dr. McCoy. Mm-hmm. She was just as irritating and said stuff that shouldn't even be said, just coming out of her mouth, just wah, wah, wah. And, you know, and everybody hated her while mm-hmm. this very same behavior by this male was endearing. And I, I will never, ever, I said, this woman says the same crap that McCoy does. And McCoy gets on my nerves, okay? McCoy mm-hmm. gets on my nerves. <laughs> but I love Pulaski. <laughs> so I always thought that was interesting, that she's a she's a female McCoy. She was given that, you know, that attitude where she just didn't give a shit. You know, she just didn't care what people thought about her. She wasn't trying to please anyone. And she wasn't trying to be nice about it. And I, I loved that character. I mean, the best explanation I can give you for that is that she was mean to Data, right? That's <laughs> yeah. that's the thing that people always come back to. She was punching down. And you know what? Yeah, she was. But I'm telling you right now, if you go back and you watch season two, very like in, in a short time frame, she has a huge character arc. And she mm-hmm. makes a complete 180 on data, and she does not get enough credit for that. Yeah. We also just had a blog post on this yeah. very topic. Um, so if uh, folks want to read more about the uh, Bones-Pulaski comparison, you can head over to our blog. I think they should have given her the ability to testify in Measure of a Man, and yeah. that would have mm. helped a lot of people come around on her if she was able to say, look, I used to think like like this Maddox guy did, and here's why I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I like that. Yep. But in in uh in TNG, I think the show gets a lot of flack for having their their main women characters in what people refer to as nurturing roles. I don't put a lot of stock into that. I think that you know those are important, especially when you're out on a long mission in space to have have a psychologist, to have a doctor, to have somebody who cares about your mental and physical health. But I think that also does a disservice to those roles. I mean, they're, they're scientists, they're professionals, they're doctors. They've studied, they've worked hard. They're at the top of their game to be on the Federation flagship. So I think that dismissing that type of role as like a traditional woman's role, like when my parents still ask me, assume that every doctor I tell them I've gone to is a male. <laughs> like, mm, I don't yeah, think right. saying yeah. that the, the chief medical officer of the Enterprise D being a woman is a, is dismissive. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Know? And that's, that's actually what I was hoping to get at. Because um, I, I think that it's 
valid to say like we tended to see women, you know, uh, congregating in, in certain career paths more than others in older media. But I agree that the way that it's often described is that like women were only in these roles. And I think that it's indicative of like a popular undervaluing of important professions, um, caring professions, which are actual work, in addition to the fact that there was science and other types of professional qualifications involved, even if there hadn't been, like taking care of other people is still important work, even without the qualifications and the science. So I think that but I do think that it especially the role of Troy was undervalued by the show creators and writers. And we we like rarely got to see her counseling. And <laughs> when we did, sometimes she was just losing it. And you can find yeah. quotes from the writer saying like, we thought this whole like having a counselor on the ship thing was new agey, and we didn't know what to do with it. Um, so I think that's another example of how the times influenced the content of the show. And something that a shift 30 years down the line would see a much different result. Well, and I think, you know, what we're, what we're saying is that this show in those positions and that, that feeling is something that now we would treasure with yeah. self care and, and being aware that people need nurturing and people need to take care of themselves and you need to call people out on things and you can't just like, you know, go to jail for 30 years and go back to work the next day, you know, <laughs> it's right. like, mm-hmm. you know, and so I think, you know, even though it's not something that was intended, I think these roles that they were playing are things that now in 2022 we would love to have yeah and we do we do in discovery mm-hmm. and we do also yes. in lower decks have a counselor but mm-hmm. <laughs> right? it's tough you, you're on some ship for you know four or five years and you know they did bring the families on so you you would have to have somebody take care of these people but i yeah. will always thank tng for the scant I think <laughs> one of my favorite things is man in a skirt. I just love it. I thought that was something that they were way ahead of their time when they had that first one. I said, okay, I'm going to like the show. I don't know what's going on here, but this is great. I wish the scant had stuck around. I, I wish they, they need to bring it back. TNG also gave us families as like part of core to the Starfleet mission, which we haven't seen in any series to that extent before or since. And I think that was interesting to, you know, help us imagine more like what life would be like in outer space if you weren't part of this kind of elite paramilitary force, scientific right. military, however you want to see it. I thought that was, you know, it was sort of like a lost in space thing. You know, they, they had the whole family with them. And, you know, unlike being on a station where you have your family, it, it, and we, did, we really haven't ever seen it again. But, and I like that they did bring some of the stories, some of that into the storylines. How do you live this life, you know, that you picked to be in Starfleet? Yeah. Also, in all that, that we got the change to the where no one has gone before line. <laughs> so, yes. this show's starting to move forward with some inclusive language. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. All right. So I kind of lumped DS9 through Enterprise all kind of in one group because the years, the production years were quite similar. And you're dealing now mm-hmm. with this context where you had more competition in terms of uh, networks and including Voyager on a new network. So, so yeah, well, how do we feel about that that production era? You know, the one that I think of as being most influenced by what was happening in the news, maybe it's because it was the time that I was most aware of the news, was an enterprise, mm-hmm. especially around 9-11. Yeah. 
But I mean, not only that, there's the the whole AIDS allegory that they put mm-hmm. into fusion and stigma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. They really did a good job with that. I thought that was um, even addiction, you know, um, when not only did poor, poor Paul, she went through, <laughs> you know, we were getting the first round of the diet pill addiction and the opioid addiction, not the one that we're going through now this cycle, but there was that cycle at that time where people were unintendedly getting addicted to things because of prescription drugs. And we see T'Pol going through this thing with the, with the trillium, but you know, she, you know, she's taking, she was taking it for something else, wasn't she? And then she got hooked on it. She was taking it for the effects of the the bad mind meld. Of the bad mind meld, right, yeah, right, right. It was all part yeah. of the same storyline, right, right. I think. And exactly. And then the next thing we know, she's cooking it up. It's like, wow. <laughs> I tell you, one of my favorites is when she put on the the suit to go into the cargo bay to get. The trillium and nearly broke her butt. I said, wow, she is definitely Jones and oh my God, this poor thing. So, um, you know, they had to pull her out of there like air holes came off and everything. She was trying to get her drugs. <laughs> this is a mess. But that was, and I like that they did this not in just one episode. They did it in an arc. So it went on and on for her. And it, took, it even took the doctor a while to realize that she had a problem. She was functional, you know. So that was a great one. And I, I think Enterprise really doesn't get the credit it deserves for a lot of the things that they did on that show. You know, that whole Zindi war and watching Archer really lose some of himself trying to get back at these people. And even Trip just absolutely hating these people when they had uh, a couple of scenes where he had to deal with the Zindi. They were trying to work with them and Trip just couldn't handle it, you know. so. It was really good. I think that, that a lot of things that we were going through at that time with 9-11 and that shock of that loss and the trauma of it, you know, I think Trip really you know, personified it for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's complicated because, you know, I know some of the actors like John Billingsley have talked a lot about how they felt that the show got like jingoistic after 9-11 um, and they didn't agree with how some of those storylines played out. I think there were definitely moments of nuance and uh, things that you can look back on and, and be like, wow, that was handled really sensitively. And then there are moments where they have, you know, the, the discussion of like flocks is, is a victim of, of xenophobia and, and like a basically an anti-alien attack on him because he's just an alien and they've been attacked by aliens. Earth has been attacked by aliens and everyone basically just tells him to just like chill out. And maybe don't like, you know, don't make yourself so prominent because everyone's hurting right now. And like, that's kind of cringy in retrospect. But I think this whole era of Star Trek, like, has, there's some moments where they did, like, great allegories and discussions of, of prominent themes really amazingly well, like Far Beyond the Stars, Critical Care, I think, is pretty successful, the mm-hmm. Voyager episode about universal healthcare, or privatized uh, multiple-tier healthcare. And then it's got cringy episodes like Retrospect about false memories of assault, and Cogenitor, <laughs> which has is problematic. Wow, and, uh, that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I would throw Distant Origin in on one of the good ones, too. I mean, I know mm-hmm. it's it's silly in some respects, but it's all about, like, truth and science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Scopes trial, basically, kind of thing yeah. going on there. It was that's, a, that's one of my favorite ones. Mm. 
Yeah. 30 days. I think what, what really oh, yeah. got me is when Star Trek talks about ecology and, and, you know, global, global issues with things like that. And I thought 30 days was an absolute great one where, you know, you had these people that really just were not believing the science. And again, what's the other one where the woman, the, the, the brother and sister scientists come? Force of and- nature. Force of nature. Wow. That is a great one. You know, so if you remember back in the day, I'm not sure if this was when this was happening, when the Force of Nature came out. Obviously, they're talking about petroleum and and gasoline and global warming. But at the same time, we had another emergency, and it was the ozone layer. I don't know if you guys Mm -hmm. remember when that was a big thing. That the ozone layer was being depleted and, you know, we found out what it was. And I, I often wonder why we don't react now to what's going on like we did. Well, I do mm-hmm. know kind of why. When the ozone layer was being depleted and we figured it out, we got the hydrofluorocarbons out of the refrigerators and the, and the air conditioners and everything else. You stopped using hairspray. You no more right guard. You didn't care. You know, you went to this dial stick and nobody had a problem. So now, you know, the ozone layer is going to basically repair itself by 2060. And, you know, you sort of see these other things where, you know, you talk about the ocean and you're talking about the warp drive one and, you know, there was this time when we could fix these things. And I think I I loved when Star Trek was actually showing that, you know, listen, we have a, a fix for this. We can help you with this. There's something that we can do. I know in Star Trek, they just stopped going at, they had to go like warp six, you know, like we had to drop to 60 miles an hour, you know, the 55 speed limit. That's basically what that was. Mm-hmm. But I just, one of the, like, my wishes is that we could get, back to the point where we actually could do something that would be as successful as, you know, repairing the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. But the the other thing that's going on in this era of, of Star Trek is a change in the way television is being made and presented. Yeah. You know, next gen, sure, things change very slowly, but essentially we're back to stasis at the end of every episode or every story. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that starts to to change a little bit in DS9, especially in the later seasons of DS9. Um, it certainly changes in Voyager because they're they're on a, a journey with a beginning and an end. And there there were arguments that happened during Voyager that like the ship should be beat up and they should be running out of stuff and there should be duct tape everywhere that we we didn't see because that was there was sort of a struggle between like how are new viewers going to jump into this if it's serialized versus mm-hmm. you know having that part of the the story visually make more sense and then by the end of enterprise we're doing three or four episode arcs telling a single story right and like look at where we are now <laughs> yeah going going for a season and we still don't know what the end of the story is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The other thing we saw is a, is a change in leadership. So we had Cisco, we had Janeway. And I I think, you know, there was obviously some, we can read about the debates they had about what these captains had to embody. There was this whole thing about with Avery Brooks wanting him to like not shave his head and stuff because he looked too, quote, street and not letting him like shave his head and grow a goatee until later on in the show. And with Janeway, there was a discussion about, you know, how she needed to be 
caring but not too caring and emotional because then people would think that she couldn't command and she can't have relationships because people will will think that she's emotionally compromised but if she's too cold then people won't like her so we had you know basically the first time that we had people that weren't white men leading the shows but there were all of these you know there was all this second guessing and thinking about how do we kind of put them in this box to make them not rub people the wrong way. Palatable. Palatable for the demographic. Mm -hmm. For that demographic that didn't want this, you know, street black man or this brainy white woman telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was definitely a struggle for both of them. And, you know, the thing that always got me with Janeway, too, which I thought was really unfair is that she didn't get to be the lover like mm-hmm. Kirk was or mm-hmm. even Picard, you know? Avery had a girlfriend at least, but Janeway, I mean, they just did not let her get much at all. The only time she got anything was, you know, the stupid holograms. And then <laughs> she got close with a couple of people and then, you know, there was something wrong. I think the workforce was the one time, the one time that she actually had something going on and she just she lost her memory. So she didn't even know who she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe for the for the first couple seasons, that was straight from Mulgrew. Yeah. Mm, she didn't want a deal, huh? Well, yeah, because they were teasing her and Chakotay getting together. And I think Jerry Taylor maybe wanted that. But Mulgrew said, like, people aren't going to respect her. And I think that that's a valid point when you're talking about people that literally work for you and you're stuck on the I ship agree. with them. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. But, I mean, talk about the time influencing the show. That is mm-hmm. straight out of the 90s right there. Yeah. If she's in a relationship with somebody she works with, people aren't going to respect her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have questions when people are in relationships with people that report to them. Well, the captain can't do that. I mean, Kirk never yeah. did that. It was every random alien coming down the street. But, you know, <laughs> I wanted her to have some random aliens. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there should have been more random, more random alien sex. Anyway. We can also see um, the enduring influence of, of our friend Rick Berman. Throughout these series, you can <laughs> find quotes in the 50-year mission of Rick Berman talking about how he was so relieved when they got to cast Paris because finally he could just cast a nice white guy. They didn't have to, like, check the boxes. Um, and you can also find <laughs> all of his talk about how hard it was to find women that were both beautiful but could act smart for the roles of Dax and Paul. Oh, my God, this man. So, yeah. yeah. That's our guy right there. <laughs> we did have more women behind the scenes. We had Roxanne Dawson directing, like, 11 episodes of Enterprise, which was the most episodes of any show directed by a woman to that point of any Star Trek show. We had... Some prominent writers, although in Deep Space Nine season seven, there were no women writers credited at all. And if you watch the DS9 documentary and like look at the writer's room, you you see Mm. it is a a bunch of dudes. And we did have Jerry Taylor actually Mm -hmm. shepherding that show. Thank you, Jesus, because (laughs) that helped a bit, I think. But yeah, it, it was really tough for those shows with that Rick Berman. I would love to know what subject would have been if. He could just have been moved aside, you know, and just let them let them handle these shows and do what they wanted to do. They did manage to handle a few things, I think. One of the things I really noticed in in the later shows, they they talked more about because now we have the Gulf War happening when these mm-hmm. shows are on, 
And so we see a lot more of, you know, terrorism and dealing with things that you've done in your past and, you know, just the the idea of the constant fighting and what it does to you. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting that, you know, even even when we get to the Dominion War in DS9, they really showed this war taking a toll. You know, it was really, you know, before we talked about the Romulan War, but we really didn't see it. Then when we had the Cardassians did all this stuff, but we really didn't see it. But we had to live through a season with the Dominion War and them losing people and them, you know, being depressed about it. And some of them in, in danger. We saw Jake going through that horrible time when, you know, he was stuck on that planet where they were just, you know, the Klingons were going to attack. It, it, it was, you know, you, it was visceral for them in this in this show, I think, more so than any other where, you know, at this point in time, we've got all kinds of things going on when DS9 was happening. We had Oklahoma City go off. We had, mm. you know, the Bo- the Bosnian at that war go off. It was just, you know, a really hard time. And I think they showed a lot of that in, in DS9. For sure. And another thing that we saw that maybe is a good segue into the current era of Star Trek is we started to see more grayness around like who's good and who's bad and, and like loss of faith in the institution of Starfleet. With DS9, we had, you know, they're forcing people to undergo random blood tests to make sure they're not changelings. They be, we have section 31 for the first time. Enterprise also builds on that with their Section 31 storyline and some of their questioning of, of like the Vulcan government and Vulcan command and Starfleet and some of the things that people are willing to do to get ahead in tough times. And that I think sets us up well for, for some of the things we see in current Star Trek. Yeah. Questioning the questioning power, the questioning. And I, I did like that about those shows that they, they really, they really were. It was, it wasn't all black and white. Mm-hmm. So before we jump into the streaming era, I'll just say the JJ verse was also a thing. <laughs> <laughs> we did a whole episode on it. If you want to listen to it, <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone has any, you know, burning thoughts they want to throw out about the context of the production of the JJ verse. You know, we're looking at three films, one of which is copying another film or remaking, mm-hmm. I should say. Copying is probably two mean of a word but i i feel like there there is not a ton of content there but i think the the biggest thing at least visually is that i think we're we're trying to mimic blockbusters of the time yeah right i think that's that's what production was trying to do is make it look like every other action movie in hopes of bringing in a wider audience right right and I think they did to an extent. Yeah. Bring in a wider audience. Yeah. Well, we definitely, I definitely know people that came in because of the JJ verse and just yeah, went oh, to see the movie sure. and then like got into the rest of, of Star Trek. But yeah, I, I don't have a ton to add on that. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I, I am a completist and, you know, I've seen every movie, every episode, uh, even the animated. And those are movies that I don't, repeat watch i don't i don't rewatch those movies i you know it's on i can only last so long you know and i love chris pine i love mm-hmm. the casting of this of those mm-hmm. shows but the stories are just whack and then the other thing that really gets me with those shows and they have no respect for the enterprise and they lost mm-hmm. me 
with, um, you know, destroying the ship several times. It's just like, you mm-hmm. know what? In the 55 years <laughs> that I was watching that show, for me, the Enterprise is like another character. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise, you know, was only destroyed by Jim Kirk himself. That ship, as McCoy said, treat her like a lady and she'll always bring you home. And one of my favorite scenes in of uh, the movies is when the Enterprise comes back to the space station after the Wrath of Khan. And she comes in and she is scorched and busted up and limping. And that ship just barely makes it in on impulse power. But that daggone ship made it back. And when the J.J. verse kept blowing up my ship, I said, I will <laughs> curse that man to hell. Mm-hmm. J.J., if you're listening, and I hope you are, <laughs> a pox on you, a pox on you and all of you people that kept blowing up my enterprise. Yep. You know, best thing I can say is um, in terms of its like legacy is it gave us Sulu as a, a same sex in a same sex marriage with a, a kid. Yes. Mm. That was cool. And I, I think that some of the other groundwork it laid is it was the it was also in an era where suddenly we had to make everything look more detailed because and this is true in the streaming era. Now people uh, are watching HDTV. Yeah. And in the JJ verse, it was because they were like in cinema, they were cinema quality. But you're looking at everything from the uniforms to the alien makeup in the, the first reimagine or second reimagining of the Klingons, I guess, <laughs> after the then getting foreheads that all of this was was done also to like increase the visual interest of of people that were going to be watching something that was really high definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they did you I think the shows look great. I mean I love mm-hmm. the I love the bridge. I love all of that. I like the uniforms. I mean I, I was definitely there for it. And you know, even the whole little Kelvin spin and Spock with the Aurora. Oh give it to me. Yeah. But- <laughs> Once the uniforms got ranks for women in in beyond, I was there. But yeah, okay, cool. So let's move into the streaming era. We have a whole bunch of context changes here. So we talked, I mentioned HD. We have a major increase in behind the scenes diversity um, from the start of, of Discovery four years ago. We also have, we're in an era where there are different shows for different audiences. Absolutely. Thoughts? I think Star Trek, the property and the fandom in general has finally started to realize that it has so often been driven by its women fans Mm -hmm. i'm not sure the advertisers quite get it yet (laughs) but i think many of the fans do and i think many and i think the the people working on the show do yes at this i was gonna say maybe not also the people developing the merchandise right (laughs) right very true there very true there but we have we have a kids show uh prodigy we have adult animation, Lower Decks. We have Discovery, uh, which has major season-long story arcs. And we have Strange New Worlds, which is more episodic, but does have character development through the season. We have Picard, which is Patrick Stewart's childhood trauma in a TV show. <laughs> we have... Um, okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> 
I don't mean to make light of it. Um, it's it's a valid story. No, I just I wasn't expecting yeah. that. I was caught yes. off guard. <laughs> and I, and I didn't also. I I was kind of you know tossing that off a bit cavalierly. Um, and I I don't mean to <laughs> make light of like the various serious subject matter it deals with. Uh, for me, I find the show like a little bit too heavy. So I'm partly deflecting because of my own reaction to the show. I'm right with you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I love that cast, too. I absolutely love mm-hmm. that cast. I thought the first season of the show was very interesting and, and you know, it was really uh, it was great. I love this idea of an <clears throat> I don't know if that show was for my demographic, you know, the old us old you know, TOS people. I don't know, because that was so TNG. I mean, that was all Patrick Stewart. So I think the people that that was for were the people who remember TNG and who had grown old with that, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Sue, as a TNG kid. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Your no, thoughts. that wasn't for you? You want me to get get yelled at on the internet, Jarrah? <laughs> yeah, get ready for it. I, I, think, I think that the first two seasons of Picard are for Patrick Stewart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the demographic right there. Yes. I, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I have high hopes for the third season, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Us. But yeah. um, no, I, I think that what, what you point out, Jared, is that we have different shows for different audiences. I think that's where, where we're starting to see some of the, the headbutting in the yes. fan base. Right. Right. Of just, they're, the shows aren't trying to have the broad appeal that they did previously. They mm-hmm. know who they, they intend the audience to be. And that's who they're, they're playing to. And if a show's not for you, a show's not for you. And that's okay. I mean, there's always been these debates about like, oh, the newest thing is not real Star Trek. We've, we've had that since TNG. Yes. And that's not new. I think that what is new is, like you said, there's less of an appearance to just kind of cater to the lowest common denominator and uh, more, more kind of attempt to, to appeal to different target audiences. And I think we also have uh, new is that this is the first Star Trek that is firmly in the era of social media, not just the fandom, but also the actors and the show creators are by and large heavily engaged on social media and including engaged in politics. And when we're at a time of like increasing political polarization in the Western world, some of the shows become a flashpoint because of of their content and also the ways that the shows actors and creators are engaging in the in the dialogue around that content. Sure, sure. I mean, one wrong thing, and you're like, oh my god, this person believes this. I'll never watch the show again. So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting too because you know they don't have to go for the broad base anymore. Mm-hmm, right. You know, back when we were watching, and you know, you had three channels, and you would have people. You'd, 15 million people watching a show at one time. You, If you get 2 million people watching a streaming show, you're doing great. So why would you pitch to everybody when all you need is 2 to 5 million? Mm-hmm. You know, so you're going to go laser focus. Yep. In a lot of ways, what they, they say in writing, right, is that the more specific you get with a character, the more universal that character somehow becomes. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, so we do know that CBS All Access, which is now Paramount Plus, um, and I just can't remember that whenever I say it, um, <laughs> that Star Trek has really been its success story. It's, it's like what it's put all its bets on for its streaming service. Because they also know some people will just watch all, all Star Trek regardless, even if they are hate watching it. <laughs> so yeah, there's like, that is, that's part of the dynamic is they just need to put out a show every week for as many weeks as they can during the year to keep those subscriptions up. Yeah. They've got to keep feeding up, keep feeding up, you know, more because <laughs> yeah, I'm paying seven ninety nine a week. I'm paying seven ninety nine a month to mon. Cause I, I mean, <laughs> what else is on that channel? I don't even know. <laughs> There's a couple of other shows. <laughs> As a fan, I'm all in favor of new Star Trek every week. As, yeah. as somebody who has to worry about reviews and recaps, mm-hmm. please stop. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> but I tell you, though, I find myself re-watching Legacy Trek more so than I re-watch New Trek. And I love New Trek. I love New Trek. I think maybe it's because it isn't finished yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still yeah. watching to see what's happening, what's going to happen in Discovery. Although, you know what? I just watched the one with where they book out of the, um, you know, the Emerald Chain place where they were like, you know, they were running for the thing with the one with Noah in it. Hey, Noah, you were great in that one. So um, I just watched that. So what am I talking about? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> if, if, if I'm home and I'm not watching Hallmark, I'm watching Star Trek. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think in some ways, Legacy Trek is easier to rewatch. Or at least mm. then discovery. I'll put it that way because of the, the serialized nature of that show. It's hard to have a, a a single story in one episode. That's that's it. Cause the next thing I know, the TV's asking me, "Are you still watching?" <laughs> you know, and I've missed whatever I was supposed to do because I, I was like, "Oh well, wait a minute, it's gonna come. The next one's coming on in three seconds." Okay. But yeah, yeah. As as I alluded to back on in TNG, you know, we finally have our our gay characters. We've got mm-hmm. lots of queer characters. We've got yeah. non-binary characters. We've got trans characters. We've got non- non-binary and trans actors in the show, mm-hmm. too. We've got a lot more diversity on screen. Yep. And 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 behind the scenes. More characters with, with disabilities, although yes. debatable how successful those representations are. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, th- I do think that they are moving towards away from the Roddenberry idea of quote unquote solving disabilities mm-hmm. and more yeah. towards the the current idea of accommodating disabilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad to see that. But I I mean it's hard for us to to necessarily see all all of the influence there is while we're in the time the show is being made. Yeah. But the the thing that comes immediately or two things actually come immediately to mind for me is the season of discovery was it season three that was all about connection yeah. and finding one another again mm-hmm. that oh. was created during the time that a lot of people were in COVID-19 lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And then even the first episode of strange new worlds yeah. where, where Pike is giving that speech about how earth tore itself apart in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point of, of using news clips, newsreel yeah. from, from very recently. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's trying, but I think, you know, hindsight is 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one area where um, I think that Star Trek needs to try again is indigenous representation. I yes. feel like they oh my gosh. Uh, have drawn back from that since the Chakotay failure with the consultant fraud, fraudulent consultant they hired to write that, that character's moments and they need to go there again a better 
way that's uh, more in line with what, you know, actually indigenous representation should be in this day and age. No, my my hope of um, strange new worlds, and it's not so much a trend. I I want them to kind of get away from episodes based on TOS. Mm. And that would make me happy. I think my favorite episodes of this, and I, and I understand why they're doing it. I understand that completely, but I would really like more things that had nothing to do. I don't mind, you know, bringing characters from TOS in. I mean, of course mm-hmm. you have those characters there, but you know, the balance of Terra one that everyone loves so much, it, it, it just irked me. But mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, don't don't mess with my balance of terror. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I loved it. You know, I really liked it. Everybody was like, oh, it's my favorite one. It's my favorite one. I was like, you know, will you just like, do your own thing? Because, <laughs> you know, that that's my show. <laughs> and I like the fact that they did come up with the, the statement that Spock is the main person that, you know, the world will end if Spock doesn't make it. So um, I loved that outcome of that episode but my my wish for strange new worlds is that it finds its own and it takes the time to do that but it, that it finds its own storyline and um i think it's getting there but it would be it would be great if it didn't rest so much on star trek tos so Anne had in in the end of her message a question that I don't think we're going to be able to answer because it's it's a bit big of a question. But basically, she asks, in what ways have the different treks impacted their time because of the future they dared to imagine? And I think you know that without getting too much into detail, it could be a whole separate episode. But we can all think of things. There's all the technologies from the you know our cell phones to e-readers to the like experiments they're doing now on like quantum entanglement to transport things, like 3D printing. All of the technological impacts. Nichelle Nichols changed NASA. Exactly. There's the <laughs> impacts of representation through directly through Nichelle Nichols. And then indirectly, we, you know, there's so many people that were inspired to go into science and space science and writing and all kinds of fields that they show in Star Trek because they could imagine themselves in those roles when maybe they couldn't previously because they had been really dominated by men, by white people, um, by other groups. And uh, so that's super cool. Impacted our entire culture. It's all the references in all of the other shows and movies and, you know, popular jargon that, you know, people know what it means. If you say like, beam me up, Scotty, even if you've never seen Star Trek, you know what it's being referenced. So many, so many impacts. Oh, like when, when when they were talking about getting the COVID vaccine out at warp speed, I just yeah. went, oh, my God. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so many, so many impacts. It's been really incredible. And um, I hope that we have, like, done justice to just a scan of some of the ways that the different eras of Star Trek were influenced by their their production contexts and the eras in which it's, they were being created. Yeah, and I think it all comes back to the the Ursula Le Guin quote, science fiction is not predictive, it's descriptive. Yeah. Mm. So Star Trek is showing us where we're at. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some speculative stuff, but not necessarily in the, it's all based on also where we are at today and, and like 
envisioning based on where our society is now, where it could go. And that vision has changed over 50 plus years because of the way that our society has changed. But I, I think that's why Star Trek has lasted so long, um, because they took that one thing that Gene did. I mean, they could have just said, you know, once Gene passed and just gone on with, hey, you know, we're just going to talk about weird things that might happen in space. But they didn't. All, all of the iterations of Star Trek have taken it upon themselves to reflect the times through the prism of a sci-fi show or make a prediction of what could be, you know, what we would like to see, you know, what the world would become. And I think that that is its um, key note. I think that is the thing that makes Star Trek the different science fiction show, why it has gone on when others have not and will continue on because you can always talk about the, the, the human condition. I know it's allegorical, but it's it's talking about real serious issues. And I think it's something that they have picked up from Gene Roddenberry and they have run with it, despite the Rick Bermans of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a great note to end on. So, Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and Sci-Fi Sisters on the Internet? You can find us at our website, SciFiSisters.com. That's S Y. F-Y-S-I-S-T-A-S dot com. We're also on the Twitter at Sci-Fi Sisters. And we are also on Facebook at Sci-Fi Sisters. We're all the mothership, which is Sci-Fi Sisters Mothership. M-U-T-H-A-S-H-I-P. It's a mothership. And so make sure you give us a holler and, you know, send us a message and tell us what you like about the show. Awesome. And go hit subscribe. Yes. And Sue? You can find me on Twitter at Speltor, S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And you can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. And I'm also at TrekkieFeminist.com. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit WomenAtWarp.com, email us at crew at WomenAtWarp.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. Thanks so much for listening.